welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with philosopher and author Bob Fisher about his work, which is very much focused on wedding academic work about animals to real-world policy change. They will also be discussing his recent book, Animal Ethics, A Contemporary Introduction, and Weighing Animal Welfare, Comparing Well-Being Across Species. And Bob is a really cool, smart guy. We were recently able to have dinner with him, and like he takes these complex theories and discusses them in a way that I think are accessible to anyone. I mean, some of the stuff he talks about... Like, I don't understand it at all. I mean, not in the interview, but in his real life. But the, this book, Animal Ethics, a contemporary introduction, it really gets into the issues in a very straightforward, very understandable way. It's a great book. I think it, it's probably geared toward uh, undergraduates taking in maybe an animal ethics course or whatever. He really has that gift, which far too few philosophers philosopher and I always feel funny when I call people philosophers it sounds like why there it just sounds like I think they're Aristotle or something they're wearing <laughs> robes I don't know it's just such a weird term so many people in academia generally just talking a lot of jargon and make it more complicated than it needs to be and I really think he he did a good job of of not doing that so yeah it, it's been fun to get to know him um at our dinner recently, and I really love this interview. Here's a heads up. We don't agree about everything. Ooh, exciting. I have a hard time with the word ethicist. I think it's weird to call people an ethicist, personally. Yeah, I can. That that's even stronger in a way than philosopher. Though philosopher just strikes me as funny, but ethicist, yeah, it, it does make it sound like they're right about everything, that they have the ethics. And since we're on the subject... <laughs> It is just a thing, though. It's like some philosophers study ethics, and that makes them an ethicist. It doesn't necessarily make them right. I, I also feel that way about thought leader. Oh, thought leader. I hate the term thought leader. I know, but you can, I feel like you can call someone else a thought leader, but you should never oh, call God. yourself one. Oh, that's God, my opinion. no. no that's, that's, yeah. has, has anybody done that? That's hilarious. I'm a thought leader. Yeah, I, I do know someone who has, but I won't mention who on the air. That's very decent of you. Maybe you should explain why your sound is so bad. Yeah, okay. I hope it's not that bad, but uh, yeah, I am actually in the car driving. Well, I'm not driving. I'm the passenger. <laughs> and... And Crash, it is, boom. Yeah. Oh, man, that would be bad. So it is an electric car. So hopefully the sound ambiance isn't as bad as if it were an engine. But, you know, it still has this like buzzy noise. So as anyone who listened last week knows, I'm on a, a vacation, uh, the great queer bat mitzvah road trip of 2023 in our EV. And we just left Des Moines and are heading to Chicago. And because of timing, we had to record now while driving. So uh, thank you for bearing with that. And uh, can I tell you actually a little bit about what I haven't even talked to you about uh, since I was in Des Moines? Would you like to hear? Yeah, I did hear very, very briefly that you had a great time in Des Moines, but that's all I know. So yeah, fill me in. Okay, so Amy Lubert is, she runs Veg Life Des Moines. And I interviewed her last year about all of the work they're doing. So if you're at all curious, I recommend going back to that interview and listening. But it just so happened that we were there during one of their events, which was a potluck. And 
we went and the every month they have a different theme. So this theme was like around the world. And, and so while we were there, we were able to sit at this table that one of our flock members was there, Paola. And that was so awesome to meet her in person. Uh, and the, and afterwards we went out with Paola and Amy and uh, a couple other people as well. And it, I just am so impressed by the the organizing that they're doing with Veg Life Des Moines. They have this giant summer market that is all vegan. And last year they got like a thousand people. And I mean, we're talking about Iowa here. So it was very fun. And we had just come from Kansas City where my niece was being bought mitzvahed. And I just want to give a shout out to Maddie's, which is a vegan soul food restaurant in Kansas City. And it was like some of the best soul food that I've ever had. I, I'm sure you're jealous. Yeah, I'm so, like I'm sure everybody listening is jealous. At the bat mitzvah itself, uh, the there was vegan food available, and one of the things available was jackfruit. And I'm usually not a jackfruit person, but I just want to say I think jackfruit is growing on me a little bit. I don't dislike jackfruit, but I I think it's weird when it's proposed as kind of a meat alternative because I don't think it's as hearty as something that should be called a meat alternative. And I don't even like the term meat alternative, but you know, to fill that part of the meal, the kind of sturdier, more filling part. I, I'm not, I don't really buy jackfruit in that way, but other than that, it's fine. What about banana leaves? Do you feel the same way about that when that's called a meat alternative? Banana leaves? I like what? Oh, I banana. What is it? Banana flour. More just told me. She's sitting next to me. Oh, Banana flour. well, that sounds more like a thing, but I still have no idea what it is. I've had like, quote unquote, chicken and waffles with that as the main ingredient. It's really good. Well, is banana flour the what we're getting into a lot of really tedious detail here, but is banana flour the ingredient of the waffle or the quote unquote chicken? Is what is banana flour? What's the ingredient? <laughs> maybe maybe more should it's just do this uh, interview. Yeah, I know it's fish and chips. Vegan. Oh, obviously. it went from it went from chicken to fish. Yeah, I was wrong. It was fish and chips. Yeah, but now I'm really hungry. All right, and I think we, we, I still don't have an answer to how you use the banana flour, but I'll talk to more about it. By the way, speaking of banana flour and interesting ingredients. Slightly shameless plug here. This has been a very long time in the making, but the Veg News podcast, which I'm hosting, is it launched this week. And I hope people check it out. It's very different from our house. It's very food and lifestyle. There's a lot of information about like what's going on in the vegan world uh, on a big level, like food wise, you know. And then I'm speaking with celebrities like Tabitha Brown and Freya Cox and uh, just a bunch of other really brilliant people, the Korean vegan. Uh, so anyway, I, I hope people listen. It's been, it's been fun and very, like I said, very, very, very different feeling than our head house. Will you check it out, Marianne? Well, you know, I mean, there's one really, really <laughs> amazing really podcast in the animal rights vegan world. And, and it's not the veg news one, but it might be second best. It might well be second best. I'm only kidding. I'm sure it'll be great. The only reason that makes me hesitate to, uh, it'll make me hungry to, to listen to it. But other than that, it sounds amazing. It will definitely make you hungry. I, I completely agree. So let's switch gears and talk about cats because let's talk about cats, baby. When we were talking about when I was 
host when I was guest hosting the talk show Connections uh, a month or two ago. One of the episodes I did was about feral cats, and I think I mentioned at that time that there was so much like energy coming my way when I was planning for that episode, like people writing to me. Oh yeah. This is, you know, I mean, we all know people who care about cats yeah. are frequently very, very passionate as well. They should be. And there's a divisiveness, like in every city, there is a strong divisiveness around the way the cats should be treated and are treated. And, and everyone feels like it should be handled this way or that way. So I think we have come uh, we've come a long way in terms of like TNR or TNVR, depending upon what group you're talking about, the V is for vaccinate. But the New York Times had an article this week that we wanted to briefly chat about regarding feral cats. Yeah, well, first of all, I have to say it's amazing that the New York Times did this long, in-depth article on the feral cat situation in New York City with loads of beautiful pictures and, you know, very sad pictures. And all right, so that's that's the good side. They did an article. But it's just so stupid. Like, so much in here is so stupid. The title of the article is How to Clear 500,000 Feral Cats from New York Streets. Already we're like, clear? Okay. After the pandemic boom and pet adoption gave way to pet abandonment, locals in Brooklyn are trying a controversial approach to population control. And guess what controversial approach, quote unquote controversial approach they are talking about? They're talking about TNR. Like this article is so behind the times, so naive, so poorly researched. It just drives me crazy. But they, you know, they're covering it. So I guess we should be grateful. Yeah. So they interview some cat caretakers and this one lovely woman who's been a cat caretaker for 23 years. And, you know, she, and they talk about her going to her colony and, you know, really nice description of her and of the kitties and there's nice pictures. And then what are the things that the, this takes place in Flatbush, but they're saying that even though you might not notice cats around if you're in Manhattan, and that's true, Manhattan is too dense. Cats just don't survive there on the streets. And then it goes on to say in the rest of the boroughs, they're everywhere. There may be as many as half a million feral cats petting around New York City, but no one knows for sure, which begs the question of why they titled the article 500,000 feral cats when they have no idea how many feral cats there are. But, you know, all right. All right, whatever. And, and then they talk about why there's this explosion of feral cat colonies, which may be true, but they certainly haven't established that. They just said they really have no idea. One of them is the high cost of vet care. The high cost of vet care is a big deal, but nobody's throwing their cat out on the street because they can't afford vet care. That doesn't make any sense. Like they might have, their, have to have their animal euthanized. They might, you know, feel really bad about it. But if they have a sick cat and they can't take them to the vet, they're not throwing them out on the street. That's just stupid. And then they talk about, uh, you know, that people uh, are more hard up because the eviction moratorium is over so they can't afford pets anymore. Again, like it's not that expensive to keep one cat if you're not talking about pet. Like I, I'm not buying that. People are not throwing their their pets out because the eviction moratoriums are over. And then they say that people throw them out of the street because they fear that they would be euthanized if they were taken to a shelter. Well, if people are ready to get rid of their cat and really don't care about what happens to them, it probably does make sense to just throw them out on the street in some, in some brutal ways. Like, it just drives me crazy that when you see these case, these issues in the, in the newspaper, they don't do a good job of reporting them. Why do animal issues get such short shrift? Then they give this story about how 
this woman, this rescuer found these cats that somebody was abandoning. And then she arranged for a veterinarian to visit the man's apartment and neuter his two remaining house cats. Well, apparently there are resources. So why are you saying that people can't afford vet care? Like, yeah. they go through the American Bird Conservancy about how feral cats uh, shouldn't be allowed to roam the landscape because they kill birds. But even most cat caretakers say they would far prefer that all cats lived indoors. Well, all cat caretakers in New York City prefer that all cats lived indoors. That's the standard line. The problem is that there are too many of them out there and they do TNR because it's the only way to control the population. Killing them doesn't work. Is that mentioned in here? No. They do talk about how brutal it is for cats out on the street. And this is my favorite part. Well, I kind of forecast it in the in the subtitle of the article. So under Mr. Zweigart's leadership, who, you know, the, he's a cat rescuer, Flatbush Cats has adopted a somewhat radical idea that was first developed in England in the 1950s to deal with a feral cat problem, TNR. Oh my God. Like, seriously? And then they talk about people in other cities are doing it too. And of course they are. They're doing it everywhere. Yeah. Don't mention that that the Audubon Society perspective is based on the idea that killing them works, though it does it does talk about a little bit about the, the Audubon Society says there's no solid evidence that TNR has actually lowered outdoor cat populations. So they do hint that that that's the argument that the idea of TNR is to lower the cat population, and it's the only way to do it because killing them doesn't work. The amount of naivete about animal issues in what is supposed to be a fairly good newspaper, the New York Times, it just drives me insane. Yeah, well, and I mean, that's frustrating to me when I think about the story that we put together at Connections at WXXI, because I wanted to get as much feedback as I could from the community. And the fact that a journalist would be so naive about their perspectives and presents so much misinformation and half information. It's really frustrating. And the headline that you mentioned, that's just clickbait because they need uh-huh. to get a, like you, the, the more you put like a, a number in a headline, the more clickable it is. But even on connections, I did not say the amount of feral cats and homeless cats there are in Rochester because there's no way of knowing. Nobody knows that statistic or the opinion offered by the Audubon Society that there's no evidence that TNR has reduced cat populations. Like, well, there's no evidence that it hasn't either because there's no like evidence of how many cats there are is very hard to get hold of. Nobody's putting a lot of money into collecting information, which would be very hard to do about exactly how many cats are out there. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah. like it's just so frustrating. Like one of the few policy issues in a very, very difficult and intractable issue within animal protection that has really has gotten traction and has really been established and is really working is TNR. And if you have arguments why it doesn't work, fine. I have no problem in covering information. But this is just, just I'm not sure if it's misinformation, it's, it's poorly gathered information, it's misleading information. Very frustrating. Though, as I said, they're covering the issue and there's lots of great pictures. And they do interview some, some obviously terrific uh, cat rescuers, which is they don't come off as crazy. They don't act like they're all like, uh, and they mentioned that one of the women is proud to call herself a cat lady. So there's that. So there's some progress, at least on the human front. But as far as covering policy, very, very poorly done. 
Yeah, don't show Fox and Eugene. Let me tell you, they would not be happy with this piece. Yeah, they don't really care. That's true. Okay, well, someone who does care is our guest today. And I think we should get to that because he has some interesting viewpoints that I think our our listeners will find fascinating to discuss maybe on Mighty Networks. If you're not there yet, join us at ourhenhouse.mn.co. Bob Fisher is an associate professor of philosophy at Texas State University, a senior research manager for Rethink Priorities, and the director of the Society for the Study of Ethics and Animals. His most recent books are Animal Ethics, A Contemporary Introduction, and Weighing Animal Welfare, Comparing Well-Being Across Species. He will be joining Marianne right after this. Our friends at FakeMeats.com have been a one-stop shop for meat substitutes, egg replacers, and more since 2011. Many of us, including me, definitely me, have been searching for vegan meat with a shorter ingredient list, and FakeMeats.com has come through with the release of their very own Plant Basics product line. Plant Basics brings us back to basics with their hearty plant proteins and plant-based seasonings. The proteins come in four varieties, all unflavored, gluten-free, non-GMO, kosher, and low sodium, and made with, get this, only one ingredient. You heard me, one, one ingredient. The classic ground strips and chunks are each made from soy, while the crumbles are created with pea protein, which is basically magic. They come unflavored, so season them any way you like. If you're looking to create a meaty flavor, the plant-based seasonings come in three varieties, just like chicken, just like beef, and just like ham. All plant-based, all gluten-free, non-GMO, kosher, and made using simple ingredients. Want to whip up a rich broth for a soup? Try Just Like Ham. Or grab some classic ground and sprinkle on some Just Like Beef and bam, it's taco night. I have to say, I particularly love the Just Like Beef because I have been so into tacos recently. I don't know if it's because I'm missing Southern California, but man, the tacos are something I crave. And once this arrived in the mail, I was like, done. Itch scratched. I love it. Anyway, you don't have to take my word for it because fakemeats.com is giving our listeners 15% off Plant Basics products through July 2023 using coupon code HENHOUSE23. That's HENHOUSE23, all caps, H-E-N-H-O-U-S-E-2-3 to get 15% off the Plant Basics line only on fakemeats.com. And you guys, I love it. And I know you will too. Welcome to our hen house, Bob. Thanks so much for having me, Marianne. I am thrilled to have you. You spend your life thinking about all the things that I like to talk about the most or hate to talk about, depending on the situation but that I think about all the time. <laughs> and I can't believe we've never done this before. I really loved your book, Animal Ethics, a Contemporary Introduction. I was just saying before we started recording that I actually understood it. I, you know, when I knew I was going to be interviewing a philosopher, I thought, oh no. But it was very, very um, coherent and readable for someone like me. And I guess one place to start, to so many of my listeners, I think, animal ethics is actually a fairly simple topic. 
But, you know, there are issues that people really struggle with. And I'm just wondering what you find, since you really go deep into these issues, what do you struggle with? I teach a class in animal law, and I have one class where I have to do animal rights philosophy, and it always makes me miserable. And I usually just start by saying that it's not that complicated to me. They suffer. We shouldn't cause them to suffer unless we really, really have to. That seems to sum it up for me. And then I get them to talk for the next two hours. But there's a lot more to it than that for most people. Can you just talk about for you, what are the tough issues? Well, the first thing to say, I mean, very kind introduction. I really appreciate that you read the book and enjoyed the book. And I, of course, was trying very hard to make it readable. And so I'm glad that it was. That's excellent to hear. And as far as the reactions that your listeners might have, your audience, your own reaction, on one level, I completely agree. That's obviously the right thing to say. Many of these issues are really easy. It's just unjustifiable, so much of what we do to animals. I don't want to defend it. Let's not pretend that many of these things really are enormously complicated. We could allocate a lot more resources to animals. We could do so much better in a thousand different ways. The basic principles that ordinary people accept, commit them to doing far better by by animals than they generally do. So I am happy to talk about complexities. I myself, of course, am interested in those complexities. That's my job. But I do think the macro level big picture take is basically right. Like, oh, wow, if we don't have to cause extraordinary suffering, maybe we shouldn't. And it turns out we don't have to. So, well, we probably shouldn't. Right. I mean, so we can so, basically so hang up now. <laughs> so we're done here. It's been nice. I look forward to having dinner and we'll catch you later. Yeah, right. So I do think something like that has got to be correct. But then if we want to dig into things, there are two ways things can get messier. One is we concede a little bit more ground to people's default preferences and say, well, how do you make trade-offs given the difficult situations that people create, given that we're going to have all of these homeless animals out there in the world? What are we going to do when it's really expensive to house and care for them? When, if ever, should we euthanize them? Those kinds of things. Well, I mean, that's a structural problem, could be solved by making some changes upstream. But now, like, now that we're in that situation, the question of what to do with homeless animals is a hard one, right? So you, you get questions like that. So where you conceded some ground to the status quo, now you're in these tough spots and you have hard calls to make. That's one way things can get complicated. And the other way things can get complicated is just that philosophical issues themselves are really confusing and where we genuinely have like hard trade-offs between the seeming rights of different kinds of organisms. You know, what do we do when some animals are disease vectors that threaten humans and it seems like somebody has to go? We can't negotiate with them. We can't systematically exclude them from human spaces. So sometimes we're in these spots where we can't help you know, run into these difficult and lethal conflicts where lives are genuinely at stake. So like rats are the classic example of this. And then if you take insects seriously, which I think you should, right, then mosquitoes are going to be another case of this when it comes to insect-borne disease. So you get those two different kinds of complexity. Complexity because you conceded some of the status quo, and now we have to make hard calls. And then you have sort of the fundamental trade-offs where even if you're sort of committed to animals and you're committed to animal rights, Still, sometimes the apparent rights conflict and you get these really puzzle, puzzling cases. 
Right. Those are all really good points then. And there are real problems. We create so many more problems than there are real <laughs> problems. Right. But but there are real problems. One of the things I thought was really interesting about the way you wrote this book is you seem to acknowledge that you kind of don't follow a certain philosophical theory, like utilitarianism or rights theory or whatever. I didn't know that was allowed. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I thought you had to. <laughs> That's right. There is, in fact, a philosophical police, and they get very upset when you don't commit to a single <laughs> philosophical theory. I think this might seem kind of a like a strange thing to worry about sort of from outside the philosophical conversation. But maybe the way into it is to think that if you're not a philosopher and you're going about thinking about these problems, you'll reach a conclusion and you know, you'll have some reasons for that conclusion. And you come to believe, oh, hey, I don't want to cause unnecessary harm to animals. Eating animals causes unnecessary harm, so I'm not going to eat them, right? You know, simple, straightforward. You don't need to involve a really fancy moral framework to reach that kind of conclusion. But when you start doing ethics in a really systematic way, what ends up happening is you try to sort of put all the pieces together. I don't just want to have this one conclusion about the ethics of eating animals. I want to know how that fits together with my views about all the other possible topics that one could discuss. So abortion and healthcare and how I should treat my friends and whether I should give money to distant strangers and what we should do about the conflict in Ukraine and so on and so forth, right? When you start trying to tell a moral story that puts all the pieces together, tells you how to think about all these different things, you have to start sort of doing moral theory, trying to think way more systematically. That's what philosophers sort of do professionally when they're doing ethics, is they try to build these really sophisticated, complicated frameworks that allow you to think about all different kinds of puzzle cases. And so what tends to happen is people start to think, well, this is the, sort of the broadly right way to put all the pieces together. And they come up with their preferred theory. And that's what you're talking about. You're talking about the, right. a theory like utilitarianism that sort of pulls all the pieces together. That's the philosopher's ambition in many ways. And it's really attractive. And you know, you see the appeal from it from the inside. You want to be perfectly consistent and coherent and systematic. But I think I'm by temperament suspicious of a bit too much systematicity. I'm suspicious of being confident that we can tell those kinds of really big stories. It seems to me that they often obscure as much of the texture and complexity and interest of the moral problems that we face as they do encounter as you're navigating these problems. How do you start sorting your way through them? What are the different kinds of moral reasons that come up? as you're trying to tease all the issues apart. And that's the way I tend to proceed. So very much in the middle, trying to think about the details of cases, trying to think about kinds of problems people actually face in the world, reveal their structure and reveal how we might solve them. So I'm a lot more inclined to think about just the details of cases. Like, what's it like being in a situation? What are the things that you, it's imperfect, but that's sort of the way I'm inclined to go. That makes me feel better because I tend to feel, I've always said, most people seem to be rights theorists. Is that the same as deontologists? I, I think it's the same. But Well, for practical purposes, we can slide them together, yeah. When it comes to humans and utilitarians, when it comes to animals, do, do you think there's truth in that? And, and now you're kind of saying, if it is true, it's kind of okay. Well, so I don't want to say something like that where, hey, there's one set of rules for humans and another set of rules for animals. 
although that could be true, and I think it's a thing we're thinking about, what I want to say is something like, yeah, we want to try to be consistent across cases insofar as we can, but we also want to be sensitive to the sources of moral wisdom and insight that are available to us and not be totally slavish to consistency, not try to be consistent at all costs. If I don't know how to square my deep conviction that we should be kinder to animals with my theory, you know, I think my theory should probably give rather than this deep conviction. And if I don't know how to fit that together with something else, I've got two other, say, incompatible views. Well, sometimes you live with attention. Sometimes you live with attention. Oh, I'm going to say now, that phrase. What? What? Yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about in class, and it all like I feel like I'm being inconsistent. I'll just say sometimes you live with attention. Right. I want to be clear. That's a thing you can do for awful purposes as well as for good purposes. Right. So right. Of you course. Have to be, of course. You have to be morally <laughs> serious when you're doing this. Yeah, right. Like you got to be really yeah. honest with yourself. Like, okay, am I really convinced at the end of the day? that I cannot give up these two things, that this is like bedrock for uh -huh. me, morally speaking? Or is it that, man, I really don't want to give up my hamburger, so I'm going to pretend that hamburger yeah. is bedrock. It's not bedrock, okay? It's not. Yeah. But I think that's the kind of thing where this move can definitely be a tool for trying to escape thinking hard about how to do better rather than a point about how to do philosophy in a way that's honest to what it means to be a human being with conflicting fundamental values. Yeah, that that is a really, really excellent point. And I do think that people do use them in nefarious ways. A lot of also what you talk about in the book isn't just theory. Don't worry, everybody. It's not just about theory, but it's also about a lot of factual issues, like how do we assess pain? And is pain the same for everybody? And how would we even know that? And how do we judge? Can you talk a little bit about those issues and maybe about pleasure too, which seems like an even harder question than how do we know about pain? How do we deal with these issues about animals? Well, it's a great question. It's a really hard question. The reality is that this is perhaps one of the most fundamental philosophical problems we face regarding animals. And in many ways, I think the ethical issues are a lot easier than the issues in what we'd call philosophy of mind uh, when we're trying to understand the minds of non-human animals. Nevertheless, there are a few places that we can start. So one of them is that we can start thinking, okay, when we're trying to figure out which other animals have minds that are like ours in morally relevant respects, so they perhaps they have desires or they can suffer or they can make plans in some respect or you know, whatever the trait is that we're interested in, we're going to use traditional tools of comparative cognition and try to advance those conversations. And broadly speaking, what we're going to be doing is thinking about what sorts of problems do organisms like this face? How do they seem to tackle those problems? What cognitive tools do they seem to need to make progress with respect to the fitness challenges that they face? All of those kinds of things. We're going to look for physiological similarities. We're going to look for behavioral similarities, and we're going to try to piece together a picture. And with some animals, it's really easy, right? It's not that hard to know what a pig wants in the grand scheme of things. It's not always the easiest thing, but I mean, it's not that hard, right? It's a lot more challenging to know what 
certain insects want or to know what animals want in non-ideal circumstances where the choices that they might make aren't really the choices that are best for them long-term, right? And of course, we all are familiar with this, right? Your cat doesn't want to take her medicine and her medicine is in her long-term interest. She's very clearly expressing the desire not to take the medicine. It's not that hard to figure out what cats want. (laughs) Well, it's not that hard to figure out what cats want, right? But then the question is like, is there some sense in which it's in the cat's enlightened Mm. interests? What the cat would desire if the cat knew more is this other sort of thing. So those kinds of questions are harder. And that's where the sort of the philosophy gets some bite. But just backing out big picture here, we care about the question of animal pain because we care about morally relevant traits. We want to know what drives our treatment of these animals. What should we be doing? What should we not be doing? And what we certainly want to be doing is preventing pain, shouldn't be doing things that cause pain. And so that's why we're investigating this stuff. And insofar as that's all we're trying to do is sort of like rule out the worst things, try to figure out where the bright lines are, how we avoid doing the most significant bad things to animals, then a lot of the philosophical complexity, interesting though it is, as much as I like to think about it, we don't actually have to go that far into because you can tell where animals are really strongly averse to stuff. You can figure out like, you know, you know, you really didn't like getting poked in that way. You really didn't like that temperature. You didn't really like being deprived of food for that period. And so a lot of the moral challenges, they're philosophically straightforward because you can just sort of read the desires off the behavior straightforwardly. It's a lot harder when you're facing other kinds of questions about what's best for an animal or when you're trying to figure out, oh, how do I make trade-offs between different kinds of animals? Those are the much harder cases. Do you think that the case has gotten a lot easier because we've learned so much more about animals than it was maybe 25 years ago? Because even though, as you're pointing out, it's not philosophically that hard to think that many of the things we do to animals are really immoral, (laughs) really wrong. We still do them. Yeah, we still do them. And I mean, there's, there are two questions. One is, you know, how good is the philosophical case now versus how good was it 25 years ago in terms of the case for treating animals well? Different question is, did people have a better excuse for not doing the right thing with respect to animals 25 years ago than they do now? And my view is that the excuse question is a lot easier to think about than the philosophical case. So, you know, I think it was pretty apparent to most people, most of history, like what animals liked and didn't like and how bad things were for a lot of the animals that they farmed. And they sort of willfully turned a blind eye. I mean, it's not like people were confused that lots of chickens were dying in their barns or that pigs were biting the bars of gestation crates or that cows don't appreciate being separated from their calves. Like none of these things were mysteries. And on some level, people should have been able to appreciate that at basically any time. It doesn't require any fancy philosophical footwork. But then the question is, well, are we in a better position philosophically? And there, I think, yeah, I mean, probably the developments in animal welfare science and animal cognition and so on and so forth have made a big difference to what we can say. But in many ways, I think, you know, what's happened in the philosophy world is that philosophers just always make things more complicated, right? 
we always introduce some new nuance and some new tension and some new wrinkle. And now if you want to say any little old thing in philosophy, you have to write 17 different papers to say it. And so, so in some sense, it really has gotten more complicated in the philosophy side, even as things have remained basically unchanged, as far as I can tell from the practical perspective. Yeah, I, that philosophers and scientists have put forth a lot of nonsense about whether animals can suffer, but I imagine most people have always understood that animals can suffer. All right, let's go back to an issue that you've brought up several times because, of course, you would because you're an academic in this world, and all academics can seem to think about nowadays is insects. And I think a lot of animal rights activists are somewhat frustrated by this. Like in a world where you can't even get people to give the slightest thought to the welfare of cows and pigs, do we really have to do this? Do we really have to go there right now? Because it's obviously complicating things. I do understand that the truth, you know, matters. And if all of these insects really are suffering, like not only does it make the world... (laughs) Even even far more horrific than we had ever imagined, but I guess we should know. So, what's the story? Are insects sentient? And what do we mean when we say sentient in this kind of context? We can imagine the sentience of a cow or a pig being sort of the same as our sentience, but an insect, like, how do we even know? Okay, good. So, let's take the issues in reverse order. So, when we're talking about sentience, what we're talking about is the capacity to experience valence states, pleasures, pains, sadness, frustration, joy, what, whatever things that have a positive or negative experiential dimension. That's what we're talking about. And the question of how we assess sentience to some degree goes back to the question you were asking just a moment ago about, well, how do we detect pain in the first place? And there the answer is something like, well, there are behavioral physiological, et cetera, markers for pain in humans. And we look for some of those kinds of markers in non-human animals. And then we think about the evolutionary forces that generated systems that seem to be sensitive to pain. Uh, In the case of humans, we think about, well, how similar are the systems that we find in other organisms to the ones that obviously produce pain in us? And we think about big theoretical issues about what pain's for, and we try to suss all of that out. So there's that kind of macro level, you know, that's the project. But the further you go in terms of phylogenetic distance, as it were, from humans, the harder that problem becomes. We can't just go and look and find the same structures, like neurological structures in insects that we find in humans. They have brains that are very different from ours. The behavior is just more confusing because their bodies are very different. They're made of different stuff. They're fundamentally organized in a way that makes our intuitions with respect to them misleading. And so it's a very tricky business to try to make any of these judgment calls. Right now, I think the position that we're in is something roughly like this. There are really wonderful people out there doing work on this topic Megan Barrett, Jonathan Birch, a host of others who are trying to think carefully about how you go about assessing these things and what the tools are and how far the evidence gets you. And I think most of those folks who I think are doing the best work would say, well, there's enough evidence for taking caution, for being careful. It doesn't mean there's enough evidence to say, and we're as confident as we are about cattle. Like That's not what anyone's claiming. 
Uh, and instead, what people are claiming is, well, the evidence is good enough that, hey, if we might be doing something really terrible to these animals, well, that's good enough reason to sort of press pause or to think carefully about how exactly that's being done. So maybe we want to have a bit more caution when we're thinking about research on insects or farming insects than we would otherwise, just because there is some evidence out there that is worth taking seriously. So I think that's where the conversation is right now, as far as I can see. But in terms of those larger, the, the big strategic question, I feel the force of that. I mean, it's uncomfortable for me as well, as someone who's very interested in this topic and has been thinking about it for the last few years. You know, I often find myself thinking, I can weep over what's going on with chickens. I can feel the heartstrings tugged even when I'm thinking about carp. My sympathies start to give out at some point, and I have a harder time feeling that same sense of moral frustration and empathy and sort of agonized concern when we switch to some of these sorts of animals. But then I think, man, isn't that just the sort of thing that other people say when they are saying, yeah, I can sympathize with my neighbor. I can sympathize maybe with that stranger who's homeless. I can sympathize. But I, I mean, an animal, I just can't manage. I can't fathom taking them seriously. So that really chastens me. It, it sort of corrects me. And I think, okay, well, I need to be careful. I need to look more closely. I need to really figure out just how seriously I need to take these other organisms because I don't want to make the same mistake that I accuse others of, of making. You certainly weren't suggesting you wanted to make. But then on the question of like, hey, are we ready? And this is really the big thing that you're pressing. Like, Yeah, because I think are, are probably we most of my listeners do would take it seriously. And we're the people who capture the spider and put it outside. 1,000%. 1,000%. That's what you're talking to here. So that's right, not of really the issue. The issue is, I guess, the truth is the truth. So it's not an argument against it. But as an activist, if you can't yeah. even... Get people to take it, it gives people an excuse almost. Well, if we can't even kill insects, like this is all nonsense. Like the whole thing is nonsense. It just gives people yeah. one more excuse to not pay attention to anybody. And the arguments for cows are so obvious to almost anybody. And the obvious the arguments for insects are definitely, definitely not. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. I saw the craziest video the other day. And maybe this gives us some pause. Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson was doing a little spot about eating insects. And he goes through and he's given all these sustainability reasons for farming insects. And, you know, he tries a cricket burger and he's all into it. And he makes this comment and he says, I assume these insects are killed humanely. Oh, wait, I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. I can, no, I, can, no. I can totally hear that. Yeah. But think about what happened in that moment, yeah. right? Think about what happened. He got, he, I mean, he, it wasn't just totally flippant thing. If, you, if it's totally flippant, you don't mind knowing, right? There's this like brief glimmer of a concern for these animals that suggests, oh yeah, maybe, maybe humane slaughter matters. And from my perspective, that suggests that the Overton window is way, way wider right. than we might have realized. Like right. people are willing to have a conversation that we couldn't have imagined. Now, look, 
Of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. Some insects are more sympathetic than others. This is not going to be the kind of thing where we're going to see this massive rollout. I hear what you're saying. I often have this thought that if you can't feel some sympathy for a sow in a gestation crate, then I, I don't know what hope there is for having a conversation about anything else. Right. So like, I, I get that. I totally get that. But I mean, I'd be underselling some of the conversations that can happen. And to some degree, there, there has to be a multi-pronged approach in the animal advocacy community where some of us are going to push on different things and we're going to push on them in different ways and we're going to play different roles in a larger conversation. I'm probably not going to go out and do open rescues. That's just not the role that I play never say in this never. conversation. Right, that's right. It could happen. It could happen. But I mean, it probably isn't my role. And if it isn't, then the question is like, well, what some place where I might be able to do a bunch of good that isn't for this other set of organisms. I don't think this is the time to be shouting from the rooftops, bugs first. That's not exactly the position I'm suggesting, but I do think it's a spot where you can say, okay, is there room for some people to be having this conversation in a focused way that allows for the possibility of some progress on welfare issues while the rest of the community is focusing on other sort of more visible, more obviously, morally significant problems. I totally hear that. And our hen house has always said that we may all obligated, be obligated to be activists, but that can mean a whole lot of different things. It has a lot to do with who you are, your personality, your skills, your comfort level, your introversion, like pick the thing that works for you. So I totally hear you. And it's interesting. I, that comment of Tucker Carlson's is interesting, which is not something I say every day. <laughs> because it's unfamiliar. When people are eating an unfamiliar animal, no matter even if it's an insect, it makes them think. And it's almost the same kind of thing that there's a lot of conversation about sentience among AI by people who are completely ignoring the fact that there are many sentient animals in the right. world, um, right. never, ever go there at all. So unfamiliarity can start new conversations. That it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a, something for anybody who's an activist to be aware of, I think, is an opportunity. You want to use those opportunities when you can to kind of bring up the question of, well, you know, if you really care about the welfare of that cricket, like maybe you should think about the welfare of cows. So yeah, it does bring up a lot of issues. It's still kind of frustrating. But like I said, if it's true, it's true. I mean, we need to know. It's just, could we all talk, instead of talking about these other things, could we all talk about the pigs? Just quickly on that. I mean, I think there are two basic visions you can have here with on this sort of front where there's sort of like a, where we knock out certain chunks of animal agriculture sort of step by step. Like first we eliminated cattle farming, and then we eliminated pig farming, and then we eliminated chicken farming, right? So I mean, we sort of like go down the phylogenetic scale, as it were, the great chain of being. And the thought is that somehow sort of tracks people's sympathies. And I can see the appeal of that, where you feel like these are animals where you can sort of stare into their eyes and you can see something that you recognize just because of their facial features that allow you to see something that, that just sort of calls out, demands attention. And I think my own thinking is just way more piecemeal, way more contingent, way more what opportunities present themselves, way more who happens to be available to do particular kinds of work at a particular time. The world of activism is just a glorious 
mess. And that's just the nature of the beast. You know, it's whoever happens to be around and wants to do a certain kind of work at a time. Well, that's the work to do because you got to be passionate about this to keep going. If you're not totally invested, you're going to burn out. So just start where people are, you know, wherever the activist interests actually happen to be, maybe that's the best strategic place to be because we're asking so much to keep going in the face of the amount of suffering that we're witnessing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Since we're getting into the idea of activism, I just want to talk to probably the most contentious topic I have to talk to you about. I don't oh, know whether okay. I agree with you about this. And in fact, I'm pretty sure I don't. For everybody listening, if you think factory farming is wrong, then you you are ethically obligated, morally obligated. I don't know what the definition of these words are, or uh, but you can't buy factory farm flesh and eat it. And really... It doesn't even matter whether it's factory farmed. If you think killing animals for no good reason is wrong. But you seem to find this issue a whole lot more complicated than that. And you actually wrote this book, which I remember hearing about before and thinking, well, I don't want to interview him. Fair enough. (laughs) It was probably the right call, I'll be honest. (laughs) It's called The Ethics of Eating Animals, Usually Bad, Sometimes Wrong, Often Permissible. So help me understand this. Can you explain as simply as possible? And you are a vegan yourself. I want to assure everybody of that. Why you feel that the moral case against eating animals is not maybe as strong as most of us feel it is, that it's morally wrong to sit down and eat a burger. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing to say about this is that it's really important to remember how academic books end up coming into being. You get sucked into projects as someone who's involved in a narrow academic conversation, and you try to move the needle among the 12 other people who are interested in having that particular conversation with you around the world. That's how academic books work, right? They're only read by a handful of people. They are weird passion projects by idiosyncratic people who probably need more hobbies that's what's going on when a, when a faculty member writes a book. That was a lot um, of excuses right off the start. Right. So I know, I know, I know, but they're important for context. And I think once you recognize that, then you can sort of think about what the role that this book was playing. So, you know, I spent several years involved in this conversation. Like, well, where are philosophers with respect to this conversation? And so you've got all these papers by different philosophers making this case that we ought to be vegan. And I was teaching those papers because I taught a class on this topic and I wanted to understand like, well, how good are the arguments? I'm presenting these things to my students. Like, can I poke any holes here? Are there any issues that I should be flagging for them? Are they bringing up interesting things that I should be thinking about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And over time I came to think like, oh yeah, I mean, I am worried about some of these arguments. I do think that this particular piece authored in 2005 by this guy (laughs) was constructed had some problem, right? And, you know, as I sort of kept going through papers and kept going through individual arguments, I thought, okay, yeah, there's a thread here. There are a few regular problems. And the regular problems that I think come up in a lot of these arguments are two. One, it matters if you make a difference, right? So if it turns out that you're not making any difference, if you're not actually helping animals, then some of these arguments don't work. So this is called the causal efficacy problem or inefficacy problem? Do you actually make a difference? And the second issue is overgeneralizing. So a lot of these arguments seem to prove too much. Like it's not just that you should go vegan, it's that you should opt out of like 
99% of things in well, contemporary actually, capitalist culture. I, I do right. believe that you should opt out of 99%. Right. So, so that's all right. But, so you can, we can move on from there. But right. But no, but so you can always bite the bullet, right? You can always say like, oh yeah, absolutely. We just should do way more, right? That like veganism is the very beginning of a very long journey toward actually doing what's right. And I'm it's, like, that's fine. It's one of the issues about living within modern capitalism. Like how totally. and when do you object to consumer totally. culture? Totally. But so then, well, I have a lot to say about that. I'm going to pause for a quick second, but I'm just going to sort of flag big picture. The idea is, hey, look, lots of these arguments, two big problems. Either you don't make the difference you thought you did, or maybe they're going to overgeneralize and prove too much. And essentially what the book does is just say like, hey, look, these are problems. And doesn't mean I think we should all go start eating animals. We got good reasons not to eat animals. But maybe by the standards that philosophers have set up, these particular arguments are not going to get us where we thought we should go. Now, if I was writing that book for anybody else, right, not for my 12 friends, you know, you don't write it that way. Like, I don't think that's the main upshot. That's not the main takeaway. Main takeaway is, hey, we're doing really bad things for animals or bad things to animals. And one way of resisting that is by collectively changing the way we eat. So let's do that. Right. I mean, that, that's but the big takeaway. Even in your most recent book, I mean, it, it's probably not as I, I didn't read the first one, I admit. But um, you reiterate these arguments to some extent, perhaps not as strongly. And talking particularly about, and I agree with you here, that the argument that you are actually, as an individual, making a little difference in the number of animals who are killed. You know, there's those T-shirts that say, as a vegan, I saved this many chickens. Right, this many right, chickens. right. Like that. In the modern world, it, it really doesn't play out that way. It's very hard to make the argument that you are individually responsible for actual lives. It's possible, you know, if you're just the, the millionth person to give up eating animals, you could maybe say that collectively it will make a difference. But you even make arguments about that that is very hard to make that argument, which I, I mean, I think that's really true. I mean, I, I hate to hear people say that, well, as a vegan, I make this kind of difference because I don't think that's the kind of difference that vegans do make, but I do think that they make a difference. And I guess you would agree. And I guess I have two things to say. One is that I think this argument has shifted a bit with the climate conversation as well. The question of individual responsibility versus collective responsibility and how much they're connected. So I think that has kind of lit up this conversation about veganism. But I think of veganism as really, and maybe this doesn't create a moral obligation, but more effective as a form of activism. Totally. I mean, when I'm teaching this stuff and I, I tell my students, some of whom come in as activists, but most of whom come in as like, you know, know nothing about this. And the best ones, in my view, are the ones who are in shock. You know, after about the fourth class, they're like, oh, my God. What's and yeah. they're trying to figure out what to do about it. And of course, they don't want to go vegan because that's nobody's first impulse. I always tell them, if you don't think you can go vegan, go vegan Outside your house, do what you eat whatever you want inside your house. Because um, people tend to think of it the other way, not to make a social problem. Yeah. You know, we're a very social species, and every time we go out in the world and, and be vegan in the world, even if we don't talk about it, though I always am a fan of talking about it, no matter how much they make fun of us for it, you might have an impact. And for me, that can make a difference. Yeah. So, look, I'm on board 
Well, I mean, first of all, I do say this in the book I know you are, and I don't don't want people to have the wrong idea. Your book is not a campaign against veganism by any means. Well, no, but even this point about activism that I I do think, you know, this is the way it goes, that we end up developing all kinds of reasons to be vegan, in part because of the importance of doing the activism. Like once you're bound up in the community, once you're embedded in the community, you end up actually probably having moral obligations here to go beyond even what ordinary people have obligations to do. Like, how does that work? If it, how does an activist have a greater moral obligation to be vegan than a quote-unquote ordinary person? Oh, well, what I mean by that is just that when we take on... So forget the veganism thing for a second, because that's just as a distraction for a moment. But just think about much more ordinary cases where you join a political party or go onto the board of a nonprofit or like you you join any kind of group and then once you do that once you've like identified with a cause and identified with a group now you've got sort of special reasons to act in ways that fit with the mission of that group and the aims of that group and i think that's what a lot of us are doing now to bring it back around right that's a lot of what a lot of us are doing when we choose to become vegan like we're signing up to be part of the cause. Like we, we want to be part of the broader social movement that makes change for animals. And once you do that, then yeah, even if there are cases where it doesn't really matter if you eat the leftovers or not, like, no, you don't eat that. Cause that's just not what you do as a member of this movement, right? Like that's like part of what it is to be a member of the movement is to draw some bright lines and we draw them around the bodies of animals, right? So I think that's how we can end up with these special reasons and obligations. And if you aren't part of the movement, then maybe, yeah, you're not going to end up with that same strong kind of reason. That's one of the reasons why we invite you to be part of the movement. Like we try to bring you along and help you see like, hey, here's why you might want to be part of this thing that tries to stand against the exploitation of animals. And Well, I'm sorry. Can I? No, no, go ahead. Because I totally disagree with you. Not about everything, but uh, I told you I was going to. About whether everybody has a moral obligation. But, you know, you probably have a stricter definition of that than I do or a more philosophical definition of that than I do. It's interesting because I think as a type of – clearly what we're doing is not working or not working well enough. Yeah, not, right, everybody's not right, going right. vegan. So, And the idea that you don't say to people – you have to go vegan. You say to people, join us in this wonderful movement. Is a, I, I like the thought of that as a mode of activism or as a, a mindset. You're not yeah. telling people that they ought to be vegan. You're, tell- you're inviting people into being vegan. I, that's a really interesting thought to me. Well, it's not mine. And you know, there are other folks who've advanced this. And you know, um, look at People like Lori Gruen, of course, who've argued for views broadly along, like more political conceptions. Robert Jones, same thing, arguing for more political conceptions of veganism. And I like that. I think there's a lot to that, a lot of wisdom to that. Admittedly, there's something really weird about someone who is as invested as in animal causes as I am writing the kind of stuff I've written. And I think this is a spot where I've probably made some choices that are driven more by my identity as an academic than my identity as an animal advocate. I can imagine they would conflict from time to time. And I'm not totally comfortable with that tension, right? So like, let's not pretend that I feel great about everything I've published or why I've published it. And I think this is one of the many ways in which 
I'm not out here to praise myself. You know, I, I, I think like, oh yeah, maybe I shouldn't have written some of these things. Maybe I don't believe these things anymore. I don't know. Actually, it's really hard. It's really I, hard to know what to think about them. I'm not, I mean, I feel like you're taking my comments too harshly because I think it's great. Like reading your stuff, I may not agree with it, but it really made me think in new, in new directions, which, you know, I've thought about this a lot. So thinking in new directions is always a nice change of pace. And yeah, I would imagine like putting yourself out there on really contentious issues like that, which no, a lot of haven't been thought through adequately, might make you vulnerable to then changing your mind. I'm not foisting that upon yeah, sure. you, but, but yeah. you mentioned it. So I think it's great, but I think everybody's more like obligated to be vegan. I'm just not stepping off of that. One of the strange <laughs> things about doing work in this area is that it has done almost nothing to change the way I feel about these issues. So my sense of frustration when I know folks you know, are looking at the tofu and the chicken and they just choose the chicken anyway. And there's just the, like the fact that I thought, well, well, there is a, an in-principle philosophical defense. Of the, I mean, it doesn't do anything to make me feel like, I mean, come on, man. Like just, <laughs> like what if, what if well, we do in here? Well, there's more work right. to be done. There's more yeah, right, philosophical right, right. work to be done to come to the right, right, right. exact. Right. And, you know, it, it hasn't been done yet. I want to talk like really, really a lot more, but we're running out of time here. And I do want to talk about your current work because as I told you before we started this conversation, I read your summary of it and I have no idea what it meant. So I want you to explain it to me and to my listeners who probably could understand it if they read it, but in much simpler terms, like because the work you're doing now is very complex and really at the heart of a lot of what's going on in the animal movement more generally. So can you talk about it a bit? Sure. Here's the big picture. You are an animal advocate. You've got limited resources. You have to make decisions about where you're going to allocate those resources. And of course, what you want to do is get the most bang for your buck. Do as much good for animals as you possibly can. And that means that you have to compare all the different things that you could do. You could try to get sows out of gestation crates and you could try to get chickens into larger cages or you could try to get them out of cages entirely or you could try to do vegan advocacy or you could spend some money trying to improve the conditions of farm fish or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And in each of those cases, you're going to be able to affect different numbers of individuals, right? Many fewer pigs than chickens, et cetera, et cetera. And you're going to be able to make different kinds of welfare improvements if you can make any improvement at all. Maybe you could do a lot for some animals. Maybe you could do a relatively small amount for some other animals. And you have to figure out, okay, when I've got all these differences, different species, different numbers of individuals, different amounts of good I can do for each of them, different costs, how do I figure out what's the best option? And of course... The theoretical questions that I'm interested in may not, in many cases, be the deciding ones. It's going to be opportunity or other kinds of things that play the biggest role in actually determining what you should do. But sometimes the theoretical questions do matter and you got to figure out, well, how do I make these sorts of trade-offs? So the work that I've been doing for the last you know, almost two years has been on how we make those trade-offs. And basically what we do is we have built a tool to take information about these animals, right? 
information about their cognitive capacities, information about their affective lives, and convert that into a score that you can use to make these sorts of trade-offs and try to figure out, well, how do we balance harms of different sizes based on the species being affected relative to all the alternatives? That at the big level is what we're doing. Got to make hard trade-offs, hard choices about how to allocate resources. We face all these different variables, different number of individuals, different species, different kinds of harms. We got to get some tool for making the trade-offs. That's what we were trying to do, build the tool. At the highest level, the idea was, well, look, some animals can hurt more than others, right? Maybe it's the case that this, the more sophisticated cognitive capacities of pigs mean that the intensity of their pain is more intense than you know, the intensity of a pain of a cricket, if crickets can in fact feel pain. And if you think that's a possibility, that maybe pigs suffer more, even in principle, or can suffer more, that is, even in principle than a cricket, well, then you got to, if you can quantify that, you can start to make some trade-offs. So that was what we were trying to do. We've done a first pass. We've done a proof of concept. We have a version out that now people can look at. And of course, it needs refinement, but it's the first attempt that anyone's made to do something like this. And so, of course, early days, we're just in the very beginnings of trying to think quantitatively about the intensity of the pleasures and pains of different kinds of non-human animals. I mean, it sounds like an almost impossible project. And one that I've, a lot of animal advocates are very suspicious of effective altruism, even though it's something that really has taken over, it is the main mover within animal activism now because of money. I mean, that's where most of the money is. Because it's a matter of weighing harms. And most people who care about animals would prefer not to do any harms. So, right. but I don't know what to do about that. Like, I understand that, but we live well, in a world knows. where many, many right. approaches are needed. And I just kind of wonder in that context, do you see this kind of work as kind of leading towards a new conception of animals by quantifying their suffering? Can it make people recognize it more in a more global sense? Well, I think the answer to that question is yes. I don't know which people, but I mean, here's, here's a way of getting at it. You know, what I'm interested in doing, macro level, biggest goal, professionally speaking, is get animals to show up in policy. Yeah. And if you want animals course. to show up in policy then you have to find a way, not just of representing how much people care about them, but how much they matter in themselves. And doing that requires using some quantitative technique because somehow somebody has to be able to plug a number into a spreadsheet because that's the only way animals ever show up in policy. Because you got to find out what the trade-off rate is going to be between benefits to humans and benefits to animals. So... I think even if we have deep reservations about the project and about how far we can get at the stage of knowledge and so on and so forth, and of course, the worry that we are being altogether too concessive to an existing framework that blah, 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 blah. It remains the case if you want to influence policy now, like this is your option. If you want animals to show up in the social cost of carbon, this is the way you got to do it. If you want people to be thinking about animal welfare is one of the 
externalized costs of animal agriculture and not just the fact that there's some methane, like the animals themselves actually matter, not just the methane. Like you gotta somehow quantify the value yeah. of that suffering. And so that's why I think, yeah, look, as difficult as the project is, and as much as there may be some worrisome side effects of doing this kind of work, it's just essential. It's gotta happen unless you've got some other way of doing the policy integration. And I don't see that right now. Yeah, I totally hear you. And I think all of us, all of us who care about this are caught in this. Like we entered into this world where there's this huge, huge, huge horror going on. And it's just so big that it's hard for anybody to come up with a theory of how to chip away at it and how to make progress. And so that's why it's really important that lots of people are taking lots of different approaches. And Couldn't agree more. It sounds like really, really, really hard work and probably fairly painful work for somebody who cares about animals. So thank you for sharing it with us today, Bob. I, Like I said, I have 400 more questions for you, so I'm not sure what to do about that. So maybe no, we'll no. do a few more on our bonus segment. But thanks so much great. for being so generous with your time today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to have the chat. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Well, uh, the first story here we have this week is really a doozy. Animal activists are waging war in your backyard. This is from a publication called Pork Business. I'm sure you read it regularly. I make that joke every <laughs> Oh, I get old really fast, I know. And I am getting old really fast. Anyway, this is by uh, Jennifer Scheich, who, you know, comments on the animal activist movement pretty regularly for various publications. And she starts off by talking about, like, it's it, it's kind of a sad article because the, the, the demo that she's talking about was so weak and why she chose to talk about it, I don't know, and and try to characterize it as frightening because that's what the, you know, there, there are these few people like Hannah Thompson Weeman who she actually uh, quotes in this article and her, and they like to convey to the industry that animal activists are a huge threat, especially, you know, a violent kind of intimidating threat. And I'll have another article by Hannah later uh, on uh, in this segment. And because that's their living, you know, that's what they do. Like, like it's they want to they want to keep this controversy or this idea of controversy going, not because so much that they feel that the animal activists are threatening, though. You know, I think they are. I think they're legitimately anxious, but also because that's that's what they do. That's how they keep going. Jennifer says that she kept a bit of a distance as she approached the site of her first animal activist rally. I watched two people huddled beside a small megaphone and a bag, checking their phones constantly. This is a really interesting story, isn't it? <laughs> oh, and these poor people. 
good for them. You know, just a few of them there and they care about the animals and, you know, they're probably shy Probably introverts, God knows. As the clock struck, Jennifer goes on, the advertised time for this group to make their announcements. I leaned in anticipating what would happen next. Nothing. <laughs> I've, I've been to this demo. <laughs> I'm sure many of you have too. About 15 minutes later, two more joined. They pulled out a banner and signs. Good for them. I mean, these people are my heroes. Another 15 minutes passed and the group, now up to five, started walking five people. Jennifer says that she realized she was listening to students uneducated about modern livestock production and abiding by a playbook from a known animal activist organization. Screw you, Jennifer. Uh, you know, you're the one who's been uh, who's making money at this. These are people who just found out the truth and are bravely trying to convey it for, for and getting nothing from it, unlike you. Uh, and she quotes one of the activists. We are here to speak out for animals who cannot speak for themselves. We are here to tell you that there is something you can do. Rescue these animals and join the animal rights movement today. That does not sound like something anybody would say. So I, my suspicion is that that is not a direct quote. But she says that the reason it doesn't sound like that is because the thoughts and ideas were scripted. You know, we're all just automatons, apparently. Just, just we, we saw a sign that said PETA once and we just started to repeat everything that they say. But that's what makes her so unsettled. Why are you fighting for a cause that you can't speak on your own about? What? <laughs> Maybe you should engage this person in conversation and see if they can uh, speak on their own. I bet they can speak on their own for a really long time. Maybe they would uh, teach you something. You're the one getting paid, Jennifer, to talk this nonsense, not them. She says, I was not impassioned or moved by anything that was said. No one else was either. Well, good for you. <laughs> like I said, I've been to that demo. But, you know, she thinks that she shares something in common with these students because she, we all love animals. Yeah, right. Fuck you. But I was disheartened to hear them support breaking the law to rescue, quote unquote, rescue animals right here in the Midwest, where we are surrounded by animal agriculture and the benefits of an abundant food supply. Yeah, right there in the Midwest, you're really benefiting from animal agriculture as your whole whole uh, environment is being decimated and destroyed. Your political infrastructure is owned by these companies. Yeah. Oh, then she goes on to talk about Hannah. She talked to Hannah about it. These two are the, the, the queens of the anti-animal um, protection organizations. And Hannah pointed out to her that organizations like this one are mobilizing activists all over the country, not just on the coasts. <laughs> oh. Oh, my God. These people, what do they think they own the entire, like every state in between New York and California? They, and then she talks about uh, DXE. They have small pockets of supporters. Uh, you know, that's really true. We are small, but we're powerful. We're small. The SAVE movement, uh, another extreme group. They have people everywhere, apparently. They find people willing to carry out their plan to get their message heard in unexpected places, even farm country USA. Screw you, Jennifer. Screw you. You think you own this country? You don't. She, she concludes, and this is really, really a good thought for us to keep in mind. The war for people's hearts and minds is moving into your backyard. Are you ready? Well, I would say the same thing to everybody out there. Are we all ready? 
since Jasmine's in the Midwest right now, uh, you know, we've already heard about uh, some of the stuff that's going on in the Midwest. It seems pretty great to me. All right. Our next article, as I mentioned before, is actually by our favorite Hannah Thompson Weeman, who is the president and CEO of the Animal Agriculture Alliance and likes to write about you. Animal rights extremists to convene in California. She's, of course, talking about the upcoming DXE conference, which is set for June 9th through June 14th. So it will have already uh, completed by the time you hear this. All farms, plants, restaurants, and food retailers in the area should be on high alert for protest disruptions, attempts to, quote unquote, rescue livestock and poultry and other potential activist activity. Yeah, I, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing what's 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 going to happen. During the farm protests, this is in the past, she she describes what's happened in the past. They do protests at farms and, and slaughterhouses. During the farm protests, a small group of activists tends to seek entry to barns to steal, quote unquote, rescue livestock or poultry. Well, yeah, you know, they've been acquitted of being charged with stealing them. So maybe it is rescuing Hannah. While a larger group stages a protest on public property. How dare they? A protest on public property with signage, chanting, and other methods of attracting attention for their cause, all being broadcasted on social media via live stream. <laughs> oh, Hannah. Yeah, we're really threatening. So she she is talking about, you know, the recent court victories by ALC and how this will be the first and how this is going to empower them. DXC is heralding these trial outcomes as victories. Yeah, they kind of weren't victories. <laughs> I mean, they were for what it calls the, quote, right to rescue and the, quote, animal bill of rights and will likely be emboldened by them to up the ante during the conference. If you have operations within a few hours drive of Berkeley or have supply chain partners who do, Dedicate a few minutes this week spreading awareness of this event to those who could be impacted, including providing a heads up, get this, to local law enforcement because they are always so confident, usually justifiably, that local law enforcement will be completely on their side and will arrest people and have them charged with um, crimes which they are later acquitted of. While I sincerely hope, Hannah goes on, you don't find yourself a target, it will be time well spent if you do. Well, I hope they waste a lot of time on it. I hope they're paranoid as hell. All right, finally, uh, from Amanda Radke, one of our favorites who I haven't heard from in a while because she kind of uh, changed uh, venues. And I just thought this was an interesting article. Agriculture education belongs in schools. You know, it is in schools. I, I want to preface this article by saying that there's loads and loads of funding and effort going into in, from, from the USDA, from the ag industry, from, you know, this is a, a major priority for them. And they get in schools all the time. But that's not who she's concerned about. She doesn't even talk about that. She acts like that's hardly happening at all. What she's really worried about is the education that's being given from groups like PETA. And she starts off talking about the movie Barnyard, which according to her swept the nation a few years ago. I kind of, it was a cartoon movie and it was stupid, but she thought it was very anti-animal agriculture, which it was kind of, but not enough. But, um, and she was frustrated and it propelled her to begin writing agriculturally accurate books for kids. Can you imagine ag agriculturally accurate from Amanda Radke? Stories that would celebrate 
I mean, already we're getting into propaganda. She says they're going to be accurate. Then they're going to celebrate and highlight everyday heroes in rural America who provide us with the essentials of life, food, fiber, and energy. How did energy get in here? I guess it's the methane thing. I don't know. Uh, I thought it was usually food and fiber. But the, the reason this has to be a priority, as if it isn't already, Oh, Scholastic Magazine, she mentions them before PETA. And she says that they get this. It's unbelievable. Frequently print articles that blame climate change on cattle. Oh, my God. Scholastic Magazine telling kids the truth. It's outrageous. And encourage students, she goes on, in kindergarten through fifth grade to give up their cheeseburgers to save the planet. Wow. Good for Scholastic Magazine. All right. Then she gets to PETA, everybody's favorite. And their character education curriculum. I wonder how many schools that they get this into. I can't imagine that it's a lot. But, you know, she said it falls under the Department of Education's umbrella of teaching respect, justice, civic virtue, citizenship, and responsibility for self and others, which is that's good. And their curriculum is called Teach Kind. And get this. It promotes that animals are unique and special. How outrageous that farmers take calves away from their grieving mothers. Oh, my God. They're telling kids the truth. This is just just really, I mean, she's actually complaining that they're telling people that that's what they do, that pigs are friends. Well, pigs aren't really friends because we're horrifically, horrifyingly cruel to them, but they could be. They certainly could be that zoos, aquariums and circuses are evil. Well, yeah. And the list goes on. As one example, one prompt in the curriculum asks the students to fill in the rest of the sentence. The prompt reads, a baby calf on a dairy farm who's taken away from his mother feels dot, dot, dot. That's just outrageous. What is outrageous about that? Like, you know, they could fill it in and said, feels fine, feels happy to be devoting uh, his his mother's milk to to humankind who are he loves so much. They could say anything they want. All right. She goes on with HSUS, you know, not as dramatic because I'm sure their materials are probably not as dramatic. But they teach how kids can get involved in, quote, animal protection. It's an outrage, just an outrage. And don't even get her started on how, quote, these ideologies have infiltrated the regular lessons. Yeah, I, I would like to think that's true, Amanda. I wish you were right. But, you know, really what we're talking about is uh, an overwhelming amount of information being given to kids about continuing to eat animals and, and including the animals being served to them themselves. But she's written a bunch of books. And she wants people to volunteer in the classroom, to donate books to schools and libraries, to open up their farms and ranches for tours. Yeah, do that. To engage in sharing our story. Well, yeah, that's really happening on a pretty mega industrial scale. But, you know, nice to pretend it's really a small scale. And she's written her books and she's trying to sell them. So I can't imagine that you will want to look that up. <laughs> and that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. 
the Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, and you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic Our Hen House brass pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 